0: Welcome to Grow Chat, a podcast series where we interview economists and social scientists asking about their most recent research papers and publications. The aim of this podcast is to share the invaluable work that economists, sociologists, anthropologists and historians do, making it accessible to the general public and students, independently from their background and preparation. I'm your host, Marco Lecci, PhD student in Economics at Monash University, and with me, directing the interview, is Sasha Baker, professor in Economics at Monash and Warwick University. Enjoy the interview. Welcome to the latest edition of Growth Chat. Today we are very happy to have Elias Papayuanu, Professor of Economics at London Business School, with us. Hi, Elias. Welcome.
1: Hi, Sasha. Hi, Marco. Thanks for your kind invitation.
0: So we will be talking about a paper that Elias wrote with uh, Stelios Michalopoulos on pre-colonial ethnic institutions and contemporary African development. And maybe to get us going Elias, you could tell us a bit about the historical background of the paper.
1: Sure. So we started working with Stelios uh, on Africa. Now, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, while I was at Dartmouth College and he was at Tufts. And initially we wanted to explore the role of national institutions. So for example, rule of law, efficient bureaucracy, independent judiciary, uh, absence of graft, on economic development. And we thought at the time that Africa offers uh, a nice setting Uh, to study the role of national institutions because you have many ethnicities, uh, people from the same ethnic and cultural and linguistic background, that because of the uh, quasi-random design of African borders that happened well before independence, when actually Europeans who designed the borders couldn't foresee African independence, offered us an experiment like many sources of experimental variation because roughly speaking, the geography, let's say of the Maasai split between Kenya and Tanzania is the same, Roughly speaking, their customs and traditions are the same, but they were subject to different uh, colonial institutions and perhaps post-independence national institutions. So one of the challenges we had to deal at the time was, first of all, how to measure the ethnic landscape. And there we drew on research, uh, uh, actually some earlier research, by, among others, by Nathan Nunn, who had used anthropological information from George Peter Murdoch, who has delineated the ancestral ethnic back uh, homelands of various ethnic groups in Africa, clearly not perfect, but it was a pretty uh, decent effort. And then we had to match this with some proxy of regional development because we wanted to measure development, let's say, at the homeland of the Zulu or the Tswana or the Nsai or the Cross. And then we came with this idea that we can use satellite imagery on light density at night, like, you know, those photos of Earth that we typically see in magazines or when we fly. These are available from the National Oceanographic Agency, NASA, actually quite granular level of analysis. So then when we conducted our analysis, so we associated differences at the border of national institutions with differences in regional development as proxied by luminosity. To our surprise, because at the time we were coming from economics, we found no statistical association. In some places, you had higher levels of development, actually in the part of the border with low quality institutions rather than the place with high levels of institutions. So I don't want to go much into the details of, of that paper that we published uh, with Tellius, but then this negative result, uh, you know, we explored it a lot and it continued to be negative, but it pushed us to think, you know, if institutions do not matter, national institutions, like the one we tend to think in Australia, when we think about Germany, when we think about Greece, when we think about Peru, what then? So actually this was extremely uh, intellectually stimulating because it pushed us to read, it, it pushes us to talk with people who had worked not in economics but you know coming from African historiography and poly science, and they all pointed out to the salience of ethnic institutions and ethnic norms. Institutions here, you know, perhaps could be formal, could be informal, or some hybrid of the two. And there were very good reasons why ethnic institutions still matter in Africa. First of all. The colonizers, as you know, established small communities in Africa, mostly in the coastline. So it's not that there was significant penetration inland. And actually, in some cases, actually, the doctrine of indirect rule or native rule, as was coined at the time, actually suggested that the ethnic chiefs had a pronounced role during colonization. Actually, in some cases, like, for example, in Sierra Leone, the British actually appointed their own chiefs because they didn't find politically centralized ethnic groups there. And there is very exciting work among others by Mohamed Mamdani who argues that, look, then independence happens. The power is those uh, ethnic leaders, ethnic chiefs. It's at the ethnicity level or the linguistic level. And, you know, typically Europeans with indirect rule and divide and rule actually magnified those differences that were not that salient to start with. So therefore look at ethnic norms, look at ethnic features. So then, inspired by work in economics on state capacity and centralization that at the time was at its infancy, but it was already having a splash, we decided to look on, you know, the degree of political centralization of ethnic groups just before the arrival of Europeans, roughly speaking, 1880, 1890. And we were actually quite uh, uh, quite privileged that uh, George Peter Murdoch and his collaborators had compiled some proxies of the complexity uh, of political institutions uh, in Africa at that time and how hierarchically structured they were. And this was actually quite important because actually scholars, for example, like Jared Diamond, and uh, not to say uh, African scholars like John Van Sina and uh, Fortes and Evan Pritchard had long argued that, look, in Africa, I guess, as all, elsewhere, you can find two extreme sets of, uh, of political organizations. Kingdoms, with the structure that they collect taxes, they provide some public goods. They have some obviously class stratification. There is wealth inequality, uh, where perhaps there is some money in circulation. You know there is some economic activity that is governed by this kingdom. And then at the other extreme, you had so-called accephalous uh, or fragmented. I don't like either of the word uh, societies, where that they are organized at the village level. And we may have some local elders or you know some chiefs that you know uh, help them deal with some uh, uh, risk sharing or uh, social issues at the at the community level, but they are not that much politically organized. And Of course, one could add some hybrids, some chiefdoms or some large chiefdoms, where you had some alliance or some degree of complexity. And actually, quite importantly, African scholars uh, uh, that we read actually made the point that Africa was quite unquote a bit unfortunate because colonization hit at the time when you had this process that happened in Europe, happened elsewhere, where those societies were becoming more and more like small chiefdoms, larger chiefdoms, and over time, they were being developed as, you know, more and more centralized chiefdoms with bureaucracy. So then what we did is we combined actually the anthropological information on the spatial distribution of ethnic groups. We distinguish which groups are politically centralized, Large or petty chiefdoms, and more and more, if you like, organization at the local level, and we associated that with regional development that we approximated using light density at night because there, were, at the time at least, there were no data available reflecting welfare or income or you know any proxy of economic development at the local level. And in sharp contrast to our non significance between national institutions and regional development. Actually, we found a very strong correlation between pre-colonial political organization and contemporary development. So this long run, if you like, correlation, which suggests that, you know, in those places in African countries, within countries, so we compare different parts, let's say, of Nigeria or different parts of Uganda, for example, the uh, Banyonkele, a strong kingdom with the Akoli that was organized not as, as, as as a chiefdom. And we find that actually this very simple, and clearly, noisy measure that Murdoch produced actually correlates very strongly. It explains a non negligible part of regional development within countries, which, as we have shown also with Stelius and Alberto Lezina and Sebastian Homan and Morris and research, is characterized by vast regional inequalities. So, we could explain part of this, you know, regional divergence, if you like, or difference uh, uh, in well being, uh, let's say within Nigeria or within Uganda or within Ghana. Oh, and, nice thing. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So so then our second step was to try to say something more about this long-run correlation. Uh, Now, the job there, it was far from easy in the sense that at least at the time, and still there is not much research, unfortunately, Uh, about pre-colonial or early colonial features in the continent. For example, you know, we we know a lot. The world knows a lot about, you know, what happened in ancient Athens. We know a lot what happened in medieval Germany or before that. Sadly, we do not know enough. Not what happened in, uh, you know, in the ancient times uh, in Zimbabwe, but not, you know, what was happening, let's say, in 17th century or 16th century. However, what we try to get around this issue, Murdoch had, we did two tests effectively. One, Murdoch provides information not only about the political organization of those ethnic groups, but also about their economic structure. So whether they were doing agriculture, whether they were doing fishing, whether they were pastoralists. It also provides some information on how urbanized or densely located the population was, which we know from important work uh, uh, in economics that it correlates in pre-industrial societies with well-being, uh, plus some other measures of, you know, uh, social issues. And what we found is that, look, we're unlike, you know, many correlations, long-run correlations where look, only political centralization correlates with contemporary development. So while, you know, it's not a bullet uh, proof uh, 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 result, is that, it seems that it is political organization rather than something else that perhaps correlates with political centralization. And then the second thing we did uh, to advance on the causal interpretation of the results, uh, which again, is, 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 it was our effort at the time, was to go to within countries, find nearby ethnic groups, nearby as identified with Murdoch uh, uh, back 150 years ago, and then compare nearby groups where the one was politically centralized and the other one was not politically centralized. The intellectual basis from that actually comes from, uh, uh, from an anthropologist, Mary Douglas, who compared in in, the, in Congo two groups uh, doing an anthropological study. And of course, it's very similar to what economists now do, like spatial regression discontinuity designs, where you compare, you know, two nearby places where the one received some treatment and the other one didn't. And despite obvious measurement error, not only drawing error, but the fact that you know ethnic groups uh, interact, of course, uh, the, we also found that look, we do see higher levels of economic activity today, as reflected in luminosity, in the homeland, in the ancestral homeland of the politically centralized groups, which further you know advanced this idea that you know perhaps there is a, a link between political centralization in the past and contemporary development. Uh, We didn't do much more, Uh, so I think now future work, uh, not only working in Africa, but elsewhere is looking, you know, what are exactly the mechanisms? Is it, for example, because centralized groups have an efficient bureaucracy? Is it because there is a lot of risk sharing happening? And, you know, African states are not particularly efficient, so risk sharing in Africa happens not at the national level, for example, as it happens in Germany, but happens more at the local level. Uh, is it because of better public goods provision and uh, and some form, let's say, of policing? Uh, this is an open area of research. We are having some work with studies, but other scholars uh, uh, are doing very important work examining those differences. for example, in Vietnam, Melissa Dell and co-authors or in various other sectors. So let me pause here. Yeah, fantastic.
0: Thank you. Um, I mean, what is most surprising about your result for many readers i would guess is the fact that well we have colonialism and you would think that the colonizers make tabula rasa and uh, all these pre-existing differences are gone after several decades of colonialism but you find that the pre-colonial institutions persist and you touched on it a little bit but maybe you can elaborate a bit more on on why it is that this survives colonialism
1: that's a great question and uh... I, again, it's not necessarily we show this in the paper, but let me uh, tell you what we wrote, we read about it, and you know, doing some field work, uh, it seems to be there. First of all, colonization in Africa is much short-lived, much less than Latin America, for example, or India or elsewhere. So, effectively, colonization, setting aside North uh, Africa and, uh, and perhaps South Africa, the country, you know, starts roughly speaking 1870, 1880, and you know, by the end of Second World War is completed and then officially it ends with the wave of independence in the 60s mostly. So it's short-lived. Second, Europeans established very small communities in Africa, so you, you didn't have like the mass migration that happened, for example, in Australia, uh, or you don't have the somewhat medium-sized communities that they were established in Latin America and the Caribbean. So there are small communities, mostly in the coastline. So it's not, and actually the people, the Europeans who penetrated in them were mostly missionaries, and some extremely adventurous uh, individuals seeking mostly ivory. Uh, so its colonizers were short-lived, mostly in the coastline, not much interior. Second, actually, Europeans, and this is the point of, of Mamdani, actually reinforced the salience of ethnic institutions because they decided to implement indirect rule. For example, the north of Nigeria was ruled by the was continue being ruled by the kingdoms that already existed at the time. And actually there is some evidence for example, in Nigeria that actually their salience increased during that time. So this is the second. Third, Europeans and actually Rwanda is the is sad example of that, quite often eh, drew ethnic lines. So ethnic lines were not, you know, particularly there. At least in many countries, there was a lot of mingling, of intermarriage, a lot of interrelations. But then, Europeans, in their strategy to of indirect rule, typically they would appoint one group that, you know, at the time they thought a, you know, to rule b and c. Let me just say that also at the time, uh, uh, neither the administrators uh, knew much. And uh, there was also an inherent racism at the time. Uh, so, these three main reasons explain why those ethnic norms and institutions, uh, formal and informal, persisted. And then, sadly, although some African countries dis- actually try to bring national identity and bring down ethnic identification, the role of chief, for example, the Julius Nyerere ex- paradigm in in Tanzania, Zamora Marcel in Mozambique tried to do something similar. In most countries, actually, for example, Uganda, you know, the ethnic identification, ethnic groups are even you know, legal or in Ghana, in parts of Ghana. So ethnicity remained actually silent and because of the weak state capacity of the modern African states, actually this legacy persisted. And this, for example, could be one explanation why we see this lasting legacy.
0: Thank you Elias. Thank you Elias. Um, I have just a quick question. I mean, you, you explain everything in your presentation here. Uh, you already talked about the data and how you guys collected the data. So what do you find challenging in this line of research? So this is like the intersection between culture and political economy uh, and history. So what did you find challenging? What do you find exciting?
1: Well, let me say that actually following also Sasha's uh, uh, important work, uh, I uh, and with Stelius and also then subsequently with Alberto and Sebastian, you know, for us, the challenge was very interesting and we love doing it. Uh, so in the sense that, you know, clearly it's not that, you know, the IMF or the World Bank or, you know, the Penwell Tables will publish like a statistics on pre-colonial centralization or how intense or extractive or... Uh, colonization was but actually and I think this is a lesson for economics going forward you know there's important research outside economics uh, and you know for example Murdoch you know an anthropologist and ethnographer tried to compile some quote-unquote quantitative measures i understand that many of my colleagues in economics I and mean, many anthropologists you know are not particularly happy or you know they point into some uh, mistakes or noise let's try to make it better so for us, it was actually quite illuminating that we're part of, 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 of a group of researchers that tried to bring together the tools of economics together with data that would come from satellites, with some historical data or, or ethnographic data. So clearly it was at the time, at least non-mainstream, uh, but it was actually quite uh, interesting, you know, to, you know, to spend time and read, you know. Um, reading, you know, for example, John Van Cynum is, I would say, more interesting than reading the IMF country report for Greece. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Talking about Greece, I mean, you are Greek origin. So what uh, made you do research on Africa?
1: Okay, so, uh, so first of all, uh, I personally, I was always uh, interested in history. Uh, so it started from my love for history. Uh, secondly, initially our interest in Africa came as I explained earlier from our thought that we have many, let's say North and South Korea's where people of the same ethnic, religious, cultural background were subject to very different institutions. Uh, so it was, I would say somewhat um, um, random or you know a coincidence. Uh, But actually when we started going, it was extremely interesting for us to keep reading about this beautiful place. Uh, Since then, uh, also again with Stelios and Giorgio Cavelli, we have worked uh, in Mozambique. We have a project assessing the impact of landmines and now a project with Sandra Sequeira on the civil war and displacement. So the more we learned, uh, the more interested I became and uh, my friends uh, at the same time. And so, you know, the more you read plus, I came to realize, because when we started working on Africa, the crisis hadn't hit Greece yet. It was just in the beginning of the crisis in the European periphery. And actually many of the issues that are relevant, uh, let's say for an average, uh, a typical African country, you know, are not that dissimilar from the challenges that, you know, developed countries uh, or high income countries uh, uh, like Greece, for example, uh, face. Perhaps they're not uh, that uh, uh, to that extent, uh, but they're still relevant. Second, I think the key insight and, you know, Sasha, you have an important work there, you know, understanding the role of history and important historical legacies on, on, on development. And I would say development, not only GDP, you know, how people behave, social development, or, you know, how people think about how they vote, how they participate in public affairs, political modernization, actually are fascinating issues. But of course we work mostly in Africa, but you know, uh, others, you know, focus on Europe, on France, uh, on Vietnam. Now, with studies, we're working uh, on, on on in Greece and the population exchange that happened uh, in the early nineteen twenties. So, I think there are many lessons uh, from this interesting approach.
0: Absolutely. So, did you always want to become an economist or a social scientist, or did you have other plans while in high school?
1: Well, it was, in my case, at least totally out of uh, plan. Um, I did law as an undergrad uh, in Athens. I was not particularly keen in, in, in pursuing a legal uh, scholar career, nor a lawyer, as my father was, and still is. Uh, so then I decided to switch to economics. I was always interested in politics, uh, and economics, of course, is a core uh, uh, component of uh, Of politics. So I switched to Columbia University and I did the master's in public administration. But actually, from the very early on, I decided to follow as closely as possible the PhD in economics curriculum at Columbia. And then I liked the statistics and econometrics and also economic theory and modeling, and then decided to do a PhD. Actually, at the time when I decided to do a PhD, I always thought that that's why I went to the London Business School. I thought that then I would switch to the industry, perhaps, you know, do banking or consulting. But then as I was doing more and more research, I was uh, you know, I liked it. So, you know, um, I think that uh, people should do what they like. So, so Absolutely. in a nutshell, it was something of a coincidence.
0: Yeah. You also mentioned as we, uh... Uh, introduced ourselves before the interview that you also teach uh, cultural economics to MBA students. And um, some people might think, wow, that's uh, unusual in a business school. But can you tell us a bit more what you like yeah, about sure. it and what the students like about it?
1: Well, uh, uh, as you rightly said, I just finished lecturing uh, uh, actually a course called Ethics uh, at the London Business School, which is mandatory course for the uh, incoming MBA class. It is being taught by five different faculty, each coming from a different subject area. So someone coming from strategy, someone coming from accounting, someone coming from OB, someone from applied psychology, me and someone coming from operations research. And actually I think that in business and business education, we observe something similar uh, to what we see in economics research. And of course the two are related. Uh, In economics research, you know, 20 years ago when I did my grad studies, you know, there was very little discussion about culture, perhaps a bit more about institutions, and the way actually we were thinking about growth uh, was perhaps through the solo or the Rommel model in some quote-unquote technical manner, industrialization or investments in human capital and how these things lead to growth. Obviously, that's a right way uh, 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 to move forward. Nonetheless, you know, I remember when I teach the solo model, you know, savings is exhaustive. So then there's just straightforward question, you know, why on earth, you know, people in Asia save much more than say people in South Europe. So even this model that doesn't have to say anything about culture, effectively, it has like, you need, you know, all students will tell you, okay, where is savings coming from? Well, in the Ramsey model, we endogenize savings, which in a very nice way, actually. But still, it must be the case, I mean, this is what most of the students and, and, and my, and my friends say is that it has to have some either cultural component or more institutional component. So nowadays it is becoming much more mainstream to think about the formal rules of the game to use uh, Douglas North's face, both formal institutions and informal culture and I think in business, it's the same thing. For example, in most of the leading business school for LBS, more and more students want to learn about ethics. Uh, they are taking more and more courses in organizational behavior, which applied psychology and uh, to some extent, social uh, sociology. So they want to learn about the organizations. It is now clear, even to my colleagues in strategy, that organizations have also their own culture. The way we tend to think that, you know, uh, people from different countries or from different regions or from different ethnic groups have different culture. Organization tend to have different culture. And actually the more I talk with uh, alumni of the school uh, and they are all like CEOs or top executives, they keep saying that, you know, they lose most of the time in trying to steer organizations and navigate the corporate culture. Besides nowadays, and we see a lot uh, here at the London Business School students, they all care about, social issues, environment, uh, for example, justice, many other issues, which were not the case clearly 20 years ago or when I completed my grad studies. And they want to learn more because they see uh, their view, not necessarily or exclusively as the CEO of company X, trying to maximize you know, the value of the pie, as we used to say in corporate finance, but also to have like a good meaning of their life, to do good on the society. And I think there is, uh, you know, this change of mindset that have progressed uh, in business from the famous uh, Friedman uh, doctrine that, you know, CEOs should only care about shareholder maximization. And I think that this, you know, it speaks, this business perspective does speak with our own research and, and many others of the need to understand the culture of people, to understand, you know, how, how communities differ with a degree of trust, for example, and why some societies design quote-unquote efficient institutions and some others not. So I don't find it inconsistent. Actually, I was trying to explain to the students but actually the two move, you know, there's a dialogue with, like between the two.
0: Yeah, I fully agree. No, fantastic. Elias, thank you so much. Uh, it was a true pleasure to see you again after a long time and to have this interview with you. And I hope to see you uh, face-to-face again in the near future yeah thank
1: you
0: thank so you much sasha thank you thank you marco thanks sasha for running the interview uh, i'll see you the next one <laughs>